Welcome to the BMJ podcast, which we're recording today from a, a grain called Cambridge. I'm Duncan Jarvis, and I've come along with my colleague, Kat Chatfield. Hello. To talk to Mary Dixon Woods. Um, in October last year, Mary published an article with us, an essay, which ruffled some feathers uh, in the world of quality improvement. And so we wanted to come here to, to talk more to, to Mary about what she really meant in that essay. Um, are some of the things that people are saying taking this in the right way or the wrong way? Uh, and really clarify, or maybe not, some of the, the things in there. Um, Mary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Very nice to have you here. We sort of travel in, I suppose, the same circles. I think I've seen you at conferences and things, but I've never actually met you before. Um, I'm gorgeous. <laughs> I was going to say, well, could you just tell me a little bit more about you? What's, what's your background and where are you coming to this world from? Well, I actually, uh, for uh, a large part of my early career, was a civil servant. And one of the things I learned there is that policymakers are very keen on evidence, but only if it's timely and only if it's highly relevant and highly actionable. And I think some of that learning has guided what I have done ever since. I'm actually a social scientist by training with um, a background in statistics, uh, did my PhD and master's at Oxford in social policy, then spent 22 years in Leicester, where a lot of my job was teaching medical students, which I really enjoyed. Um, started off with a lot of scepticism towards the idea that social science might have anything useful to say to um, would-be doctors, but uh, we, we managed to convert them usually and uh, got very high ratings for our courses. And I think that, again, was because we were demonstrating the very practical things you can learn from a social science approach to the issues that confront doctors every day. Um, I got into the area of studying improvement maybe about... Um, Coming up probably to about 20 years ago, uh, when I was invited to be um, uh, an associate editor for what's now BMJ Quality and Safety. And that's been a very large part of my work ever since. I'm now co-editor-in-chief of BMJ Quality and Safety. And I see my mission in life as creating an evidence base for doing improvement. You use the phrase quality improvement. And uh, I'm just going to offer a small challenge to that, which is that Doing improvement in healthcare can involve quality improvement, which is a very distinct set of techniques, but it's also much more than that. So not all improvement is quality improvement. Okay, and I think that's possibly where, you know, the the, the thrust of that article lies. But I'm just reading it, and I suppose when you say you've got a background in, in stats and things, that, that makes sense, because it felt like you were taking quite a sciencey look at quality improvement. Or improvement, um, am I am I getting it right? Is it, do you think this is a sciencey uh, that that's the thrust of your argument? Yes, I think it's very much the the thrust of my argument is essentially that anything we do in healthcare that's intended to produce benefits for patients should be subject to scientific scrutiny. I think there, there's also something quite distinctive about how you study improvement. It's not like studying a drug. Uh, but there are many analogies with studying drugs or other interventions. When you're trying to study something like improvement, you're intervening in real time, in real clinical practice. Um, you're often um, doing things which intervene at an organizational level rather than individual patient level. 
And there are very particular ways you have to build your theories, your theories of change about what are going, what's going to happen. And what I see is an awful lot of energy and activity around doing quality improvement, various other forms of improvement, and we're not always systematically generating learning from that. So as an editor, I see lots of good studies, but I also see a large number of very poorly conducted studies. And I see an awful lot of learning squandered because no study at all is done, and then the same mistakes are repeated, or you're not accumulating and curating knowledge that would be helpful to the next improvement programme. I think that's an interesting word that you used. You use the word kind of um, we, we intend or we have an intention. And I think one of the things that, that Duncan and I have been discussing while reading the paper is, you know, it seems like a lot of this activity is happening without much um, thought to the intention. Um, they're sort of thinking about the sort of narrow, what do we want to achieve in this particular situation or this particular context, but not about the kind of broader, you know, what's the learning? How will this contribute on a wider scale what you know it's very much sort of narrow focus um i mean do you think that's a problem in improvement at the moment this sort of narrow focus or what do you see there i i think you've put your finger on us i think some of what we see is things that are both too narrow and too small mm-hmm. uh, so some goals of improvement projects are way too um narrowly conceived and are inattentive to the wider uh, implications don't search for the unintended consequences either of that particular intervention or the system as a whole. A very simple example would be there are lots of very well-intentioned attempts to improve patient safety. If they take place too locally, you may actually produce something that works locally, but you've introduced a system risk because you have destandardized something which should be the same wherever you go whatever general practice you're in, whatever hospital ward you're in, probably should be more or less the same. Mm-hmm. And that, I, so I think that that concept of narrowness is very important. I think the issue of scale is also important. And I think this is another feature of narrowness. Um, we have an awful lot of very poorly con- con- um, coordinated quality improvement activity going on. It tends to be something junior doctors are asked to do. Uh, they're incentivized to do it through portfolio systems and... Um, Uh, need to build up points for various uh, activities. And sadly, an awful lot of that is done as a kind of tick boxy thing and it doesn't have permanence and it doesn't really produce the change we're hoping to see. Are you saying that that the ethos of quality improvement has been lost a little bit and it's become dogmatic and and codified into a set of rules and and things? in a way that I don't know, maybe your religion or, or any other political movement or, or lots of other things are. I think one of the things we see is that there are certain orthodoxies mm-hmm. of quality improvement and there are kind of established ways of doing certain kinds of things. So there's something called a model for improvement, which is a quite well-bounded, well-known set of techniques. Um, it includes things like using statistical process control charts to monitor what's going on in your system and detect whether there's change using specific types of statistical rules. It involves using PDSA cycles, plan, do, study, act cycles. So you're you're using small tests of change and a variety of other things. So that's a kind of very well-established orthodoxy, but less well-known or less used in the NHS include things like Lean and Six Sigma. And I'm absolutely convinced all of these things have their place. 
uh, I think they're not always applied um, to the right problems. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the model for improvement is used to solve the wrong problem. Sometimes lean is used to solve the wrong problem. And uh, they're not always done particularly well. Uh, so one issue that we know about is that measurement uh, tends not to be done particularly well. Most people who work in the NHS are not trained up data scientists um, with the best will in the world. They do the best they can, uh, but they, they tend to make various kinds of um, errors, for want of a better word, as they're doing the, the measurement, don't always interpret it correctly, and uh, it then doesn't provide a good basis for action or knowing whether something really has improved. So some of that is actually tractable to better training, um, and some of it, it needs needs better thinking that's not all QI isn't all isn't the, pro, the solution to every single improvement problem. Yeah I, I think that's a really important point that you make and not just about the sort of different scales and you, you know some things might be amenable to a sort of a more local focus some yeah. things might be a large-scale approach but you know the idea that yeah QI is the answer to any problem you know that you need to improve um and that when you said earlier you know you don't call it quality improvement you call it improvement for healthcare and I was thinking one of the problems with quality is when we're talking about quality care and we often go to the Institute of Medicine definition it encapsulates so many different types of yeah. thing you know sort of safetyness timeliness and so you know quality is often used not just for patient safety quality improvement not just about patient safety but um for other problems and then you I sort of end up feeling like some things can be done really well like for example often I've seen small junior doctor projects based in a particular clinical context um improve patient experience yeah. because it's very local it doesn't need yeah. to be standardized across lots of places you know it's good co-production um and that can be very effective but then obviously when you're looking at surgery or something that's much more pan system something that goes across primary and secondary care then the, the sort of benefit and the risks are completely different um that's not really a question, is it? That's a point. <laughs> but I guess, you know, just yeah. sort of breaking down quality and saying, you know, what different aspects of quality care might we want to think about using different approaches? Yeah. Um, would, I wonder if that would be helpful. Yeah. No, I think that that's an extremely valuable set of observations. And that's something I'd like to see a lot more of is, is thinking through, given this problem has this set of characteristics, what's the right way of tackling it? Mm -hmm. Am I some of my problem with the way quality improvement is done at the moment is they start with the solution rather than starting with the problem. And I'd like... I'd the like solution to, in that case being... QI. QI. So they, 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 they basically say, we start with, this is how you do QI, and then they they apply it to the problem. Mm. Whereas when you see people, when they, they're taught how to characterise a problem and diagnose what it is, mm. sometimes QI really is the solution. Mm. Um, and sometimes they need a different approach to solving the problem. And there are many different ways you can, you can do that. I think there are also issues in terms of problem definition regarding what's regarded as a suitable problem and who gets to own uh, the selection of the problems and which things are seem to be the important things to, to address. And you mentioned co-production, Kat, and sometimes the, the problems that are being tackled are not the ones that are most important to patients. Absolutely. And we see that in um, evidence-based medicine, don't we? You know, these research questions and priorities that are being set you know not in consultation with patients and then answering research questions that that don't matter <laughs> to people and, and you see that with improvement as well that you know 
trying to work out what the outcomes for this healthcare system that really matters to patients yeah. and staff and, and everyone, all the stakeholders. Sorry, I'm being really QI jargony again. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, everyone involved. Um, yeah, I think that's that's important. Yeah. So I suppose, I mean, it feels, as someone who's outside this world, like a slightly semantic difference, the difference between QI and and improvement and things. But you think it goes beyond language, and it's 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 it is more of an orthodoxy. It's something that's that's changed, perhaps in in that movement to make healthcare better. Because you feel like everyone actually, the goal of this is is always the the, the improving care for people. Sure, uh, I don't think it's it's just a semantic um, distinction. Actually, I think it's a real a real one. So. Uh, Quality improvement, QI, is a subset of the things you could do for improvement, right? So QI is this distinct band of techniques. Now, not everybody agrees with my analysis here, but QI you can kind of, you can see as being this this quite well-defined set of, of techniques that you can be taught how to do. Not everything that you want to improve is tractable to QI. So an example could be something as simple as... Um, uh, uh, looking after your staff better. Mm. And I, I don't call uh, knowing people's names a QI technique, but we know that that actually makes a huge difference to people's experiences at work, that I, I know to call people Cat and Duncan and not simply say nurse or uh, not call you anything. That That's not QI, that is improvement. Mm. Um, making sure you greet people in the morning. All these things are, are improvement efforts, but they're not QI. Is, is that making sense? So I, 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 and I think if you talk about quality improvement all the time, it, it, um, it limits the perspective. Um, I think it can, can turn some people off because they think you mean that when actually you're here to think about how they could solve the problems that are important to them. And I think that's something that we probably got a bit wrong um, at the BMJ, actually, because when we embarked on this um, series of articles that were supposed to be around improving healthcare, um, yet very quickly we sort of fell into the sort of shorthand of, of using QI and quality improvement as, as the terminology, when actually really I think that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the much broader endeavour. Um, and, you know, we have a definition for this series, which, which kind of alludes to the broader approach. But I think regardless, it is really important to be aware of, of these, you know, I don't think there's semantics either, but I think it's really important to be conscientious of, of what we're calling things because QI does is becoming inextricably linked to that particular set of tools and approaches. Mm. Um, well, that makes sense. <laughs> That's good. Like, I, I understand that. And I suppose what you're saying here is that those are good in some places, but... Oh, yeah. Yeah. But we need other tools and, and other things in different places. And I suppose that's why I was asking at the beginning about that scienceiness, because you do talk about, you know, RCTs and oh, yeah. that, that sort yeah. of high quality yeah. evidence in there. Yeah. And what I didn't understand was, you know, the trouble with RCTs is you define a really narrow outcome and and improvement can be a very broad squishy outcomes that are hard to, to measure. So that I was like, how yeah. to, how are you saying we should just do RCTs on everything? Oh, I'm definitely not <laughs> saying we should do RCTs on everything. I think there there is though a class of things you should be doing RCTs on. And uh, I think it's actually a real responsibility to do it. There are multiple other study designs that you can use for evaluating improvement. And one of the things I'm very committed to is bundling evaluation around improvement uh, so that 
uh, my mantra might be uh, no improvement without evaluation, but I, 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 the, the waste of learning is very troubling to me. And um, the, there's a phenomenon I call the lovely baby syndrome, uh, which basically means people tend to love that which they give birth to. And uh, if, if you're not really honest with, with your evaluation, the risk is that you, you, you think something is a great solution when actually it's not so great. And when you do really rigorous studies, you're sometimes very surprised by what you find. Uh, so in fact, there was a recent study um, on this phenomenon of hot spotters. And this has been a huge theme of the last five or six years in wow, health services research. Um, this is the phenomenon that a very small percentage of patients account for a very large proportion of health service use. So if, if we look at, say, attendance at um, EDs, uh, it will be a very small number of patients who account for most attendances, most admissions to hospitals. So, so this tiny group of patients account for an awful lot, very high volume of use. And it's a reasonable hypothesis that if you focus your efforts on those hotspots of use, um, and try to support those people better. You might keep them out of hospital. You might um, enable them to self-manage better, et cetera, et cetera. That's a perfectly reasonable hypothesis. The scientist in me says that is a testable hypothesis mm. and you must test it before you assume mm. this is going to have this wonderful effect of keeping people out of hospitals. A study appeared last month that showed a huge hotspotting program did not work. And in fact, we've now seen two or three um, studies in the UK, um, some of them done by the Health Foundation, um, which have not used the term hotspotting, but have done exactly the same thing, tried to see if you put more resource into these vulnerable people, will we get better outcomes in terms of uh, hospital admissions? Not one of them has worked. But then, you know, that's something that I remember happening in practice, yeah. you know, years ago, you know, working as a GP. I mean, this is probably, you know, good almost 10 years ago now, you know, care coordinators, community matrons, you know, trying to kind of segment off your practice population to identify your hotspotters and give them targeted additional care. Um, but, you know, so often these kind of pro programs or kind of s solutions come down to the front line that, that haven't been rigorously tested uh, and you end up putting funding and effort and you know a lot of change in practice around something with with no real evidence that it actually works so I think you know the sort of frontline perspective in me says oh yeah great I don't want to waste my time <laughs> doing all that work if it's not going to make a difference um, so that's really interesting to but then the lag behind the it's sort of almost a wrong way around for the translational gap isn't it so the other way around yeah. it's like the practice is here and then yeah. the research and the evaluation yeah. is lagging behind rather than you know the sort yeah. of traditional bench to to sort of bedside gap. Absolutely. And I, so I would be very keen that most of these big improvement initiatives have a bundled evaluation from the beginning and you take it through a structured process, a bit like you would with a drug. You've always got a pharmacokinetic study first, you've got some kind of phase one uh, study and you could see this working very similarly. You test it in one practice, uh, you can then begin to scale up, uh, you're very sensitive to side effects, all this kind of stuff. I mean, my personal theory on the hotspotting thing is actually the, the group that are very high users have very high needs. And if you put more resource into looking after them better, you they actually end up being admitted more because you're actually looking after them better. So the, 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 you know the, again, it comes back to the patient's perspective on all of this, what, what might appear a failure from a policy perspective that you haven't got people being you have reduced readmissions from a patient perspective might be a very yes. different yeah. outcome yeah. so that you need really good studies in mm -hmm. these areas and you should never just assume what looks like an improvement initiative is going to produce improvement mm -hmm. and you also have to think very deep 
deeply about whose perspective matters in defining what counts as an improvement. And I think there, when you're talking about kind of the the system, the risk across the whole system, you were talking about earlier, but, you know, from a community point of view, you know, yeah, it's maybe a lot better for a community perspective that these patients are, for example, in hospital, um, you know, having whatever their complex need is really dealt with rather than bouncing back continuously, you know, from the practice to out of hours to ED. And, you know, it's not just the patient experience, it's kind of, the yeah. uh, you know perspective yeah. of others in the same system and we're so often not very aware of you know the whole pathway i guess mm. um. this is from a you've convinced me <laughs> of your, your side of the argument um but i'm just now thinking about you know the practicality of some of this stuff in the, the real world because it seems like you know if you took hotspotters as an example there are so many layers of things going on there and some yeah. things that you know might be measured in, in one way, evaluated in another. Perhaps there needs to be an RCT and you go, oh my God, that's suddenly the complexity of actually even trying to do something seems vast. And and yet we do need to do this. Um, you know, this is we're talking often about perhaps avoidable harm and, yeah. and the problem yeah. of that. So, so, so what do we do, Mary? How do we think? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm just so um happy in so many levels that the Health Foundation put this vast investment into the Healthcare Improvement Studies Institute, this institute where we are today, because I, th- I think that is the, the motivation. We, we have to produce an evidence base for doing improvement. Mm-hmm. Some of what we're trying to do here is um, what we're calling template projects. So we're kind of trying to come up with a way of doing something once, so testing out a methodology for studying something that can then be used over and over again. So I'll give you a simple example, which is that we're trying to use citizen science, having multiple contributions from patients and staff um, into a project. So doing this at huge scale, people giving minutes of their time to give us their feedback on something or come up with an idea. Um, and um, we're, we're going to use that to solve problems around the NHS that are unglamorous um, and that nobody has ever been able to give time or attention to, like how you design the plastic box you put your postpartum hemorrhage kit into. Every single maternity unit in the country has one and not one of them looks like the next. Mm -hmm. But through citizen science, we think we could consensus build the best one or two. And uh, that would be a template project. So that could be used over and over again to design your plastic box for... um, Uh, advanced life support or whatever it's going to be. There are multiple um, problems of this kind. So that that would be one type of problem that we think we could do. And it kind of gets to the issues we were talking about earlier, about involving staff and patients at scale. Um, Other things I think you can actually do some, if you build in improvement programs so they have evaluation from the start, it doesn't actually have to be as expensive as it looks. Uh, Karen Late in Bristol has been doing this fantastic project looking at improving care in Um, for neonates and improving uptake of a drug that helps to reduce uh, the risk of a poor outcome for babies born early. And she's managed to do that through a trial approach uh, wrapped around improvement that was happening anyway. And I've done several of these studies where we've wrapped the evaluation around the improvement program. We're not doing the improvement program, but we're studying it and producing learning. Uh, So I think there's an awful lot more that could be done, uh, but it requires a bit of a shift in thinking from if we're doing an improvement program, it's going to produce an improvement to we're doing an improvement program. Let's make sure it works. 
I have sort of two comments here, which is probably unhelpful. But I think the first one is with some of the com- things we've been talking about, like um, large scale, um, you know, lots of people yeah. working together, designing the best one or two postpartum yeah. hemorrhage kit boxes. I guess one of the criticisms, the obvious criticisms for that is, well, you know, what we're talking about is standardization. Um, and how does that fit with um, localization yeah. and getting buy-in from people yeah. in local organizations? You know, um, maybe it's true that everyone loves their lovely baby, but then, you know, what's that yeah. challenge for getting yeah. them to love this like <laughs> massively um, co-designed plastic box yeah. baby? <laughs> so, you know, So, you know, how do you get people to adopt that kind yeah. of thing? That's my question. Okay, so that, that, I think that's another very valuable uh, comment. Um, so the hypothesis here is that if you are sourcing ideas at scale and you can show you're working, you're not just uh, hand- insisting it's got to be this plastic box mm-hmm. or this design and you've got to pack it in this way. If what you're handing back is this, this is the outcome of, of all of your wonderful ideas and everybody's had a chance to comment. And we're not saying it has to look exactly like this, but these are the principles you would use. For example, it shouldn't weigh more than this or that. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing we we think we can hand back. But these are meant to be things that are assets. Mm-hmm. Um, these are meant to be things that are actually valuable to people. And I think standardization can be done really badly and it can have really bad consequences. But sometimes we're not standardizing when we should be. And that has bad consequences too. So some of the sweet pot is going to be finding things that are at least harmonized or there's some some um, similarity from one spot to the next. And I think we haven't been very good at that in the NHS. I give the example in the paper of until about 15 years ago, every NHS trust was allowed to choose its own um, emergency call number. And, uh, you know, th- that, is, that isn't about loving 76392 yeah. versus 2222. That, that's just about y- you actually benefit from having a standard solution. So it's not a bogey person. It's it's sometimes the right way to go. And and I, I don't shy away from the fact that sometimes we need to be standardizing. And But I also think there there is a huge and ongoing role for local improvement as well, which also needs to be supported. Mm-hmm. How you do that best, I think we haven't quite um, we haven't quite worked out. Mm-hmm. So in all of this, are you saying if quality improvement got kind of codified into a set of tools and things, um, is this just expanding massively those set of, of tools or is it kind of a philosophical difference? That's a good question. Um, so let me be very clear. Quality improvement techniques have an invaluable role. They, mm. they are very important where you run into challenges is when that's seen as the only way to do improvement. And there's a kind of, I'll put this very simply, but but uh, there's a, there is a philosophical issue here, which is about category levels, right? So something like, does surgery um, treat cancer? Is, is, is where you're treating surgery as a category of things. And as a category of things, we might say it has a role, but we can't tell whether it's suitable for um, every single cancer, um, and we, we would need to know something about the surgical technique. That's what we would evaluate in a study, right? So as a category of things, surgery has a role in treating cancer. If I say as a category of things, does aromatherapy have a role in treating cancer? The answer is probably no. Okay, so that, that that's the contrast. Does quality improvement have a role in improving quality? Yes, but we need to figure out, a bit like you do the technique and the 
uh, clinical problem in cancer, you would have to work out what is the right, what are the, the things you should match it to. I, th I think it do, I don't, if, as an analogy, that may help. I think so, right? I suppose uh, there's a bit in there about it's the philosophy about, you know, I don't know, having an interrogation at the beginning and, yeah, and really yeah, yeah. thinking about stuff as opposed to, that's the difference you're talking about, as opposed to like jumping into picking directly from the set of rules. It's, it's taking a step back and, and really going, ah, what are we trying to do here? Yeah, yeah. And uh, absolutely right. And I, I think some some of what goes wrong with QI as well is a kind of sheep dipping approach that people are sent off on courses and set taught a set of generic um, methods, and they then struggle to to understand the the application for their um, own clinical practice. So when we see improvement working really really well, um, it's 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 one set of a whole lot of things that they're doing, and they're, they're using an awful lot of collaboration typically in very successful improvement efforts. And one example is Michigan in um, the US, which has an extraordinarily successful um, set of improvement programs. Um, which basically relies on bringing people together from across organizations and using what they call positive deviance. So they, they use statistical techniques to identify very high performing um, organizations. They then go and figure out what those people are doing in that setting. Um, and, and this is at a very specific level. So this is how do you solve the problem of making sure the nurses know the drugs have arrived in the ward. It was something as practical as that. They figure out what they're doing and then that solution is shared in the collaboration. Um, somebody tests it a few more times and that's what they go with. And it works unbelievably well. And I think we haven't got enough structure in place in the NHS for us to do that kind of thing at the moment. I think that that sounds very appealing. The idea that you might... Uh, I, I guess there's this issue for me with you have a problem... And, you know, I think for me, if you're going to use a kind of QI iterative change approach, the kind of, you know, it implies you don't know the solution, right? Um, because you are discovering this solution as you go along, possibly. I mean, you may know the solution, you might be testing the solution. Um, but sometimes, you know, we just know how to do it. <laughs> Someone is doing it really well and we know how to do it, but we don't know how to get it done in our own situation. Um, and sometimes, like with Michigan, we don't know what everyone else is doing, you know, because we're working the same institution for a long time and it's terribly difficult to find out what happens in other areas. Yeah. Um, not over the really big things, like which drug do I use first line for this breast cancer with this kind of, you know, receptor positivity, but, you know, what do I do in this, you know, really small minutiae of daily practice, like, you know, when the drugs arrive on the wards, uh, you know, where do I find out about that? You know, and then you just end up completely reinventing the wheel. Um, so, yeah, that's not really a question either. <laughs> it's, it's a very important comment. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. there are things beginning to emerge. I mean, I think the Q community mm -hmm. that the Health Foundation is funding yeah. um, and yeah. organising, I think, will eventually have a, a major role in this. I think, you know, there's going to be something about how you do those kinds of exchanges. Mm -hmm. And our current hypothesis is that there's something very important about um, the your kind of professional community, the mm -hmm. clinical area in which you're working. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you're trying to solve a problem to do with uh, respiratory medicine and your particular area is COPD, mm -hmm. there's something very important about knowing how you solve that kind of problem with this kind of technique rather than just being taught the technique and then having to figure out how you make it apply back back at base. Mm. Mm. Kat earlier mentioned uh, about you know understanding what's going on yeah. and uh, you know as part of 
the, that role of dissemination. But we know that trials are really bad at explaining what on earth the intervention and, and things were. Uh, so it's not just about spreading the word, it's, it's getting that word right. Yeah. I guess a big concern for me is that it's often very hard to work out what somebody did when they say they have produced an improvement. Um, one of my PhD students at Leicester, uh, Emma Jones, did a very nice analysis of reports of quality improvement in surgery. And she showed that in most cases you have no idea. Um, you certainly couldn't replicate and scale anything that's described in those reports because the, it's the briefest of brief mentions or a lot of the tacit knowledge that's necessary um, isn't described. And certainly the kind of social, socio-technical elements are, are kind of completely absent. Um, so I, th I think this is another task improvement needs to take on is, is a kind of uh, this implicit knowledge, uh, the, the relationship building, all that stuff that really is key to improvement, but get, get le gets left out of the story. And I think as well, from my experience, I think QI in terms of this set of techniques and things is, is quite a barrier to that. Because when I was editing um, BMJ quality improvement reports very early on in my career as an editor, uh, now BMJ Open Quality, um, you know, you, you get a lot of projects in and it would feel like essentially what would happen is that they had a really good idea. They saw a problem on the ground, they had a really good idea. They fixed it and it made a difference and they probably did measure it because, yeah. you know, they knew that they had to prove to their boss that it had worked, um, but they hadn't used a particular tool or approach. And then when they were writing it up, they suddenly thought, oh, we should publish this. And they suddenly tried to retrofit all these fake PDSA <laughs> cycles, you know, instead of just just recognizing that improvement, yeah. as you said, someone calling someone by their name is an improvement. You yeah. know, instead of just describing the experience as was yeah. and, and sort of their theory of change and all of those things that probably had gone on, yeah. but they didn't have any language or, um, or sort of support to kind of draw out and articulate, even in quite a narrative, even a narrative, Absolutely. you know, story of what they'd done would have been more valuable than these kind of artificial, yeah. artificially structured QI reports, which is not to say that Squire guidelines for QI reports aren't helpful, but it was quite interesting, that kind yeah. of clash of um, experience and yeah. structure. I think that's a great story. And the, the other side of this is that we have spent quite a lot of time studying what appears to be the safest maternity unit in the UK, possibly in the world, which is in North Bristol. And one of the things you find there is when you go into that unit, the staff are doing fantastic stuff all the time um, that is so second nature to them, they don't actually articulate it. So when you say, um, so how are you doing X? Uh, they tell you a part of the story and it's not until you watch what they're doing. So we, we spent hundreds of hours down there in deep observation of what the staff are doing. So it's, it, it, they don't have the language, they don't know they're doing it, and yet it's all fantastic. And, and it is often things like uh, they call each other by their name. They, they don't, you know, the consultant is, has, uh, is on first time, term names with everybody. They, the consultants talk about, they have, the, they have a shared um, coffee room. This, this turned out to be one of the key things. Um, and various other, practices, uh, little things that they're doing that all add up to a very, very safe uh, maternity unit, but they can't tell you, or they can only tell you part of the story. And it's it's definitely not all PDSA cycles. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not always about application or 
or just choosing a solution that you know works or, or whatever you you know if you're a nurse and you you're on the ground and you see like a really practical problem you yeah. have some ability yeah. to to change that problem yeah. but maybe to convince your boss yeah. or your boss's boss or yeah. your boss's mm-hmm. boss's boss to put some money into this because it's going to cost something yeah. you need to prove that there is an issue there in the first place and you're not necessarily particularly well equipped to to do an RCT, to do anything else. And so in some ways, going back to those initial QI tools, it gives you a power in the system Mm -hmm. to do things. Yeah, that that is extremely um, important that um, some of what you see with improvement efforts is that the, the power structures don't facilitate it happening. So the people who know or notice the problems aren't necessarily the people with the power to escalate them. There's then the whole agony of going through business cases and so on. So I think some of what I'm arguing from a research perspective is some of our job is actually showing what the economic case is for doing this sort of thing or providing people with information that they can use to build a case for trying something or implementing this particular solution. So a very practical example is in a lot of chemo suites around the country, you're only allowed to bring one person into the chemo suite with you, not for any clinical reason, but just because they're very overcrowded. And there's often often an issue with crowding in waiting rooms as well. So you could see a situation where um, you've got some kind of collaborative effort to test different solutions. It could be the people are waiting somewhere else and you've got something like those sandwich buzzers that bring you down or, you know, you've different um, techniques for people arriving or checking. You you could imagine there might be five or six different solutions that you could test. And if, if you're then able to show the two of those that seem to work the best and somebody has to make a business case to their manager saying, look, this is, we, we already know using the sandwich buzzer system uh, is, is much quicker, it's going to cost this much and so on. It just helps. So I think putting the evidence behind some of this QI stuff and improvement stuff is, is really key. So one thing that that makes me think of is um, something that we sometimes hear from patients is that um, one of the, and I guess also like, you know, the political move to sort of shift things to the community. It's like, just because you're producing solutions together, sometimes it can feel like you're putting the burden on patients or on the burden on communities to solve systems problems or societal problems. And sometimes I think as frontline staff, it can feel like just because you're noticing the problems and working with them, the kind of whole effort of QI and training everyone to do QI means that you're then, it's your problem to fix. Um, but in kind of a resource-strapped environment when there's lots of time pressures and also acknowledging the fact that, you know, it's difficult yeah. and complex to know which set of tools and approach yeah. to use and how yeah. to evaluate it effectively. You know, how do we sort of, you yeah. know, deliver mm. that tension? Right, everyone can have a professor of quality improvement, you know, to <laughs> chat to and ask these kind of questions of. That's absolutely right. And, you know, we've been talking mostly about clinical staff so far, but there's really actually some very good evidence from other sectors completely outside of healthcare that one of the things that makes the biggest difference to productivity, worker satisfaction, uh, customer experience and um, efficiency is operations management. So really, really high quality operations management is one of the areas you should be really investing in if you're interested in improvement, which is why I don't, another reason why I don't 
want to confine improvement to QI. I don't think we're very good at um, training people up in, the, in this in the NHS. Middle managers are some of the most influential people without necessarily realising it. They're, they're, they're often some of the most powerful people in terms of whether things happen or don't happen. And uh, they get very little investment. So I would love to see more attention to how we, we strengthen that layer of the NHS and, and enable uh I'm going to use a horrible word, capabilize uh, those people. And that is a very horrible word. Uh, We'll have to improve that one and um, have them uh, form coalitions of the willing with um, clinical staff and patients. So it's a sense of solving problems together. Mm. Now, we've talked about RCTs and and various other things. So it's making me think about this, this world of EBM. And we understand that you know someone on the ward isn't going to be able to carry out an RCT there's almost like there's a, a an infrastructure a, yeah. a academic infrastructure that that's around this that that helps that is that there for the QI or improvement uh, stuff or is that yet to be built okay so I, this is actually a topic on which I have very strong views um <laughs> and Basically, I think you should be able to do improvement programs that have an RCT wrapped around them or a cluster randomized trial wrapped around them without the researchers being responsible for the intervention. Um, so most times, most of the regulation is based on the assumption that the researcher has designed the intervention and is now going to test it. That is not the case in improvement. And in fact, you can do very little as a researcher that makes people do anything. But if, for example, you want to roll out something like telephone triage for GPs, um, there isn't any reason why you can't um, sign up GPs that are interested in testing this. Their primary purpose in doing this, they don't care about the research actually, their primary purpose is to is to try this, this new system. So their primary goal is improvement and my goal as a researcher is to study it. I, I, I think the, these are these are two completely compatible and not ethically problematic things. We could help um, in randomising the timing that the practices get to do this and we could tell within two years whether this, this is a go or doesn't work. As it turns out, it's a bit problematic, <laughs> as you showed in the BMJ. Mm-hmm. Um, so so you, you this is what going back to what I said earlier, there are actually ways you can do this much more cheaply mm-hmm. than than it might appear because the, the improvement program is going to happen anyway. It's it's what NHS England or the Royal Colleges or in fact the hospitals themselves want to do. And you can wrap the evaluation around it. So the timing is the thing that gets um, altered, not the intervention itself, and the researchers never touch the intervention. It's what the organisations are doing. Their primary goal is improvement. But that implies a programme that is kind of working across the whole NHS or whatever healthcare system you're in, which requires a, a level of, of forethought and, and someone to actually kind of grasp that. And, and yeah. is that happening? Yeah, there are no shortage of uh, improvement programs. Not always called that, but there's no program shortage of initiatives, programs rolled out across the NHS all the time. Most of which have never been evaluated. So that'd be a pretty good place to start. Uh, we're going to see the um, primary care networks are going to be trying to do a lot of this improvement stuff. Why not evaluate it? But I think that's what you're alluding to, Duncan. Is not the not the existing infrastructure for rolling out initiatives which as we all know is alive and kicking and you know sending yeah. things down to the front line all the time but the infrastructure for the evaluation partnerships yeah. you know how 
as a clinician, you know, in a CCG who know that we're going to do this new thing and want to evaluate it, but don't have the skills or the capability or the time, you know, how do I find, you know, an evaluation partner um, that I can work with? And, you know, what structures do we need to have to facilitate that? I I don't know the answer to that. Um, And I think it's a really important question that we need to we need to be start thinking about how to make this happen and how to make um, the, the available learning um, actionable, accessible to people who need to use it. Again, I think the Q community is beginning to work on, on some of this stuff, um, but I'd, I'd, uh, this is something I'd love to talk more about um, in terms of what, what it might look like. So the article which kicked this whole discussion off is available on bmj.com. It's called... How to Improve Healthcare Improvement, an essay by Mary Dixon Woods, and I'll link to it from the podcast text as always. And that brings us to the end of this podcast. Now this, along with all of our other podcasts, and there's a lot in there about healthcare improvement, are available for free on bmj.com, in Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or really wherever else you get your podcasts from. We'll soon have one about how important it is for managers to just get out of the way and let their staff get on with improvement. That's a little way off, so subscribe so you don't miss out on that when it comes. Next, though, on the podcast, we'll be talking letters. Are you actually writing to the right person? Until then, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.